Well, I've asked uh, Pastor Roland Hammett to bring our last message to the conference. Brothers, go good to have you with us. Lehigh Valley Baptist Church, Emmaus, Pennsylvania. You reading the Bible where those two fellows were walking just a few furlongs to Emmaus? That's where he's at, brother. So I Amen. preached on that Sunday. I told him it was maybe a different Emmaus. It's good to see you all. It's good to be here and uh, appreciate Mount Zion and all the work they've done for this conference. Really a blessing. Uh, really honored that I could stand in this pulpit tonight, and I trust that I'll be able to share with you what God has put on my heart for this evening. Um, we bring you greetings from Lehigh Valley Baptist Church. Several of our folks are praying for this meeting, have been praying for this meeting, and for each of you to be encouraged and helped in the ministry and uh, I trust that their prayers have been answered. I know God has answered their prayers on my behalf this week, and so we're thankful for that. We appreciate uh, those of you who support our missions program, several of our mission, missionary families, and you know uh, we're thankful that God has allowed us to be a part of sending five families to the field, and we're grateful for that. A couple of our families are here, the Williams and the Hammets. We're glad they could be with us. Uh, a couple of our families are on the field, and we appreciate your support of them, and many of you have supported the Kastner family for a number of years, and you're aware, I, I believe, if you didn't get that letter, see me afterwards, but uh, the Kastners are going through a, a great transition in their ministry, uh, just returned from Botswana at the beginning of this week, and will be headed to Houston, and Brother Gary will be, become the pastor down there at Heritage Baptist Church just north of Houston uh, at the beginning of May, the first Sunday of May, and we're excited for them, but we appreciate uh, so many of you who've supported them all these years. They've been with us for 33 years at Lehigh Valley Baptist Church, and so we're certainly going to miss them, but we're thankful for what God is doing. Gary wishes that he could have been here, but he said something about jet lag and uh, thought he'd be a little too tired to travel. So we're, we're glad uh, to be able to be here tonight. I, I did want to mention tonight that uh, if you go out to the book tables, which Brother Smith has been uh, talking about. There's a pre-publication discount on my uh, book that's coming out, The Pandemic Playbook, uh, Three Easy Ways to Leverage the Next Global Pandemic for Ministry Success. And you'll also be able to sign up for my podcast where I'll be detailing specific steps for how to pastor a Zoom church from a remote tropical island. And uh, so... You, you won't want to miss that. If you're unsure, I am kidding. <laughs> if there's anything that I've learned in the last year, it's that I couldn't possibly write a book about a pandemic. It's, uh, I think several of us have said something we never studied in our ministry training was what to do during a global pandemic. And uh, I think all of you who pastor could say with me, over the last year we've made decisions and had to deal with things that we never would have imagined and uh, hopefully we'll never have to deal with again. However, uh, I do fear that this is not the end but the beginning and probably good for us to start thinking creatively about how uh, we will do ministry in a very different world. I want you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 9 this evening. If there's a principle which has been 
an anchoring principle, a principle which has brought encouragement to my heart over the last uh, 12, 13 months. It's the principle that we're going to deal with this evening here in John chapter 9. I think you're familiar with the story, and we're going to take as our text tonight the first seven verses. The whole chapter really deals with Jesus and his encounter with a certain blind man who we are told in the text was blind from birth. And he had never been able to see, which I can't even imagine what that would be like, but he had never been able to see, and evidently it was well known that he had never been able to see. And Jesus, as he so often did, came by this man who was in need, and he performed a miracle, and as he spit in some dirt and made some clay and put that on this man's eye, which is a very interesting scenario as it is because we know that Jesus could have just spoken the word and he would have been healed, but he anointed his eyes with this clay and then he sent him to a particular pool, the pool of Siloam there in Jerusalem and told him to wash. And and the Bible tells us that he did that and then he returned from the pool seeing. And I would add seeing physically, physically. Because the point of John 9 is that though he could see now physically, he did not yet see spiritually. And of course he was questioned, who are you? How could you possibly be the person who never saw and now you can see? And he said, I don't know what to tell you. They brought him to the Pharisees. The Pharisees are all upset. How did this happen? He said, I'm not sure what to tell you, but this guy named Jesus, uh, he put clay on my eyes, and he sent me to the pool, and now I can see. And they said, what are you saying about Jesus? He said, I don't know what I'm saying. I'm just, he's a prophet. I know, I know that once I was blind, but now I see. That's what I know. They called the parents in for questioning and grilled them. We're going to cast you out of the synagogue. They said, we don't, we, we don't want anything to do with this. The chapter ends with Jesus finding that man and revealing to that man who he was. And the Bible tells us that by the end of the chapter, he not only could see physically, but he could see spiritually because he believed on Christ. It's a beautiful story about what God can do. But there's a principle that's revealed in the first seven verses, which is, I believe, very helpful for us in times like these. The scripture says, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither hath this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had thus spoken, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay, and said unto him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is by interpretation sent. He went his way, therefore, and washed, and came seeing. The thought that I want to key in on here in these verses is the statement of Jesus in verse 4. I must work the works of him that sent me. 
while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. Some years ago, I was taught that if you want to know how long it is until sunset, as it's getting late in the day, you can take your fingers and hold them up to the horizon, and you can use your fingers as a rough gauge for the amount of space between the bottom of the sun and the top of the horizon. And each of your fingers is worth about 15 minutes of daylight, approximately. I've used that before as I've tried to estimate, now how much time is left for me to finish this job before it gets dark? Our young people at our church love to play volleyball after the services. And they've been pleading with me, begging, cajoling, arranging. How can we get lights on the volleyball court? Because they hate that it gets dark and they have to go home. In fact, last year they got so desperate they pulled their cars out there and shined the headlights and played, much to our neighbor's dismay, I'm sure. There are things that you can't do when it's dark. There are things that must be done while it is day. Now we see in the beginning of John chapter 9 that the disciples were worried about something. Worried is probably not the right word. They were fixated on something. They saw a man who was blind and they evidently discovered that this man had been blind from birth, he had been blind his whole life. We find later in the chapter he was more than 40 years old. And so their question, their theological brain twister was, Jesus, who sinned? Was it this man who sinned? Maybe he sinned in the womb. Maybe when he was a baby in his mother's womb he sinned, and that's why he was born blind. Or maybe it was his parents. It was probably their fault. Isn't it? Isn't it ironic that the disciples are so much like us? Because we often ask unnecessary questions and make unimportant observations. They're seeing something, and Jesus is looking at the same thing, and he is seeing something totally different. In fact, if you look in our text in verse 1, the Bible says that as Jesus passed by... He saw a man which was blind from birth. And the word saw that is used there in our text means to look with comprehension and understanding. When Jesus saw this man, he saw something that the disciples did not see. Now bear in mind that everything in Jesus' ministry, in my opinion, is put there in the scriptural record because Jesus first of all, was training his disciples for a pattern of ministry and life. But second of all, it's recorded for us in Scripture because Jesus intends for us to learn from these type of encounters. There was something his disciples needed to learn, and there's something that you and I need to learn. And the truth is, we tend to see a lot like the disciples do, and not very often like Jesus does. But Jesus saw a man who is blind from birth. Jesus sees this man, but he sees more than the fact that he has a physical handicap. He sees more than a theological question to unravel and to help his disciples understand. In fact, you know, he just kind of brushed by the question of his disciples in verse 3 because he said it has nothing to do actually with sin. 
It wasn't that this man sinned, and it wasn't that his parents sinned. And then he says something stunning, actually. He says, this man was born blind so that the works of God should be made manifest in him. Which means that God in his sovereignty had allowed 40 years before this a little boy to be born to some hopeful parents who would discover that their child could not see. You might imagine that their hearts were broken, that they were crushed, that their dreams were shattered as they held their child and realized that this little boy could not see. Perhaps they even asked the question, God, why? Why? And there was a reason. By the way, we don't always figure out the reason. This is one of the the circumstances or instances where God gives us the reason. In this case, God allowed this to happen so that the works of God would be made manifest, so that they would be displayed, so that they would be seen very clearly. Now, all of this is going to this exact instance, and of course, Jesus Uh, knows exactly what is going on. He's prepared for this moment, and he's trying to teach his disciples that everything that is happening is happening for a reason. So here's here's the principle that, for me, has been an anchoring thought through the last several months in particular, is God is always working. Always. We are still here because God is still working. And the truth is, it's been a confusing several months, hasn't it? Listen, I remember sitting with our ministry staff at the beginning of COVID and just thinking, what in the world is going on? Okay, 15 days to slow the spread. But something that we found is that over the last several months, though many of our church programs were canceled, God never stopped working. God kept working. And if we believe that God is working, then we also have to believe that as ambassadors of Christ who speak in God's stead, be ye reconciled to God, that God is not just working on his own, but that he wants to work through us. And this is what I believe Jesus is trying to get his disciples to understand, is that the Father is working and that they need to see what the Father is up to because he's always working and there's always work to do. And so with that in mind, just three thoughts tonight, and then I'm done. First of all, I want you to see the priority of the Father's works. Jesus said it very simply in our text, I must work the works of him that sent me. Now Jesus, in this way, is an example for us because we know that Jesus is God. He's the creator. He is is the omnipotent one. 
He's he's in no way less than God. And yet, when Jesus came into this world, he submitted himself to the will of the Father. And we find repeatedly in the Gospels that Jesus was concerned about doing that which the Father wanted him to do. This is an example for us. The Father's works should be our priority. It's already been said But if you are saved, you've been bought with a price. Your life no longer belongs to you. You are not living according to your agenda. You are supposed to be living according to the priority of the Father. And believe me, the Father wants to work in and through your life. The Christian life is not some kind of a mechanical exercise of going through motions and and just... Uh, doing this and doing that, and okay, that's the Christian life. The Christian life is dynamic. It is a relationship. It's not cold. It's God wanting to relate to us and through us to the world. But see, as believers, we get distracted with our works. We get caught up with our plans. This is what I would like to get done. This is, these are my goals. This is what I would like to achieve. And I want you to understand that oftentimes there's an overlap between the Father's goals and the normal things of life. For instance, if you're a father and a husband, then part of God's working is going to be related to your responsibilities to the family. I don't think God is going to ask you to abandon your wife and your children to go do the works of the Father, you see. I think he's going to bring those two things together. So oftentimes, you know, things that maybe cause us some anguish really shouldn't cause us anguish because God has meshed all of these things together quite perfectly. But it is true that we can become distracted with things that are our goals, our our pursuits, our plans, and we can forget that the Father has something He wants to do through us. I trust that you're convinced that it is the work of the Father that you're here tonight. I I trust that you, you really believe that you're in the will of God being here right now. Because that's how we ought to live our life. We ought to live our life with the understanding what I am doing right now, what God wants me to do. I, I often give advice to our young people who, and, and our older folks, you know, who are looking for God's will in their life. It's usually the younger folks who are more asking questions about what God's will is. And, and a lot of times younger folks are, are interested in, you know, what is God's will? And when they ask that question, they mean, who am I going to marry in five years? And where am I going to live? And what kind of a job? And, and how big will my house be? And, and uh, you know, what, what am I going to do? Or does God want me on the mission field? Or this or that. And, and here's what I often say is if you make sure that you're doing God's will today and tomorrow you make sure that you're doing God's will for that today, then in five years, if you do that every day, you'll be right where God wants you to be. And you won't have to worry about it. You won't have to be in anguish. In fact... A lot of times, God doesn't give us a five-year plan, does he? If, if you haven't learned anything in the last year, you should have learned that. How many, of you, how many of you make plans for the church for the year? Yeah, we do. I, I told the church this year when we handed out our little calendar with dates, I said we wrote them all in pencil because we really have no idea what's going to happen. 
it, but that's how we should live, right? We should live with a priority for the Father's works. I, I want to I prioritize. And, and, and here's the thing. When, when you start seeing God working and you start participating in what he's doing, because when he shows you what he's doing, it's, an, it's often an invitation for you to be involved in what he's doing. He's saying, hey, here's a place I'm working, and I want you to be a part of this. And I'm telling you, there is nothing like it. There is nothing like knowing that you are in God's will. So there's a priority, but second of all, there's an urgency. And and Jesus used the word here in John 9. He said, I must work the works of him that sent me. There's no option. I have to do what the Father wants me to do. Can I just say tonight, we need this kind of holy compulsion to do God's will. And and by this, I mean, and I want to apply this really specifically to the fact that oftentimes God is at work in the lives of people around us, and he's giving us clues that he's working in their life, but we are so oblivious to what is going on in people's lives. And I'll talk about that in a moment but we're oblivious to what is going on in other people's lives, mainly because we're so focused on ourselves that we completely miss what God is doing until God kind of like slaps us upside the head and says, hey, over here, this is where I'm working. And and when we understand that God is doing something, there is an urgency to that. There There is a sense in which We can't waste any time. Now, I want to balance that because sometimes Christians kind of get frantic. And we get this idea, well, to do God's will, i got to run around like a crazy person and and i got to constantly be doing, 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 doing. And it's amazing when you read about the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, he was always busy, but he was never frantic. He, was, he, was, he never seems to be rushed. He's always in exactly the right place at the right time. And, and, and then in that moment, he's able to minister just like he does to this man. And, and it's just, everything just falls into place. And I, I really believe that God wants us to live that way. I, I don't think he wants us to be frantic, but I don't think he wants us to act like we're on vacation either. You see, because there is an urgency we could talk tonight about the urgency of reaching the world with the gospel. There's an urgency, brethren. And I know we are living in strange times. I know that there are a lot of question marks right now about how missions work will even take place. Travel, crossing borders. These are all very weighty considerations. If you don't understand that, then you should understand that every missionary is thinking about this right now. What am I going to do with all of these things that have just, like this, been introduced? But what I do know is that Jesus did not rescind the Great Commission because of COVID. So the Great Commission is still there 
And I also know that if he tells us to go, he's going to make a way to go. So he's going to, he's going to provide, but there is definitely an urgency. See, there is, a, there is a must to doing the works of the Father. You might have noticed in your life that the works that the Father is doing are often on a timetable. There are many times when God may invite you to do something, may re reveal something to you, a place for you to step out by faith, and if you do not obey him in that moment, that chance will be gone. It's not as if the chance will just hang around forever for you uh, until you decide, okay, now I'll do it. There's an urgency. This was a moment in time. There's a man who's sitting here. There's, a, there's an opportunity for ministry. And Jesus is so confident in the will of the Father. He knows I'm exactly where the Father wants me to be. This is the person the Father wants me to minister to. And in that moment, God used him to teach us a lesson. And he is an example for us. Now, I know the tendency is to think, well, that's Jesus. And I can't really live that way. But we can we can. And this really brings us to, we've seen the priority and the urgency, but now I want you to just think for a moment about the activity of doing the Father's works. What does that mean, anyway? To do the works of the Father. To work the works of the Father. It's very similar to what Jesus said to his mother and to Joseph when they found him in the temple. And they said, what are you doing? And he said, wished ye not that I must be about my father's business? That idea of business is the same idea as this work. It's a conducting of the affairs of another person. And so there's this idea that the activity of doing the work of the father requires something from us. There's two ditches that we could fall in. The... There's the ditch of, I do everything. I work hard, and God blesses my effort. The emphasis totally on the work. Then there's the ditch of, well, I'm just waiting on God to work. And that's a ditch too. You know, both are principles that are taught in Scripture. He wants us to depend, but He wants us to do. He wants us to be busy, but He wants us to wait. They're both scriptural principles, and, and it's not that they're in contradiction to each other. They're balancing points. And you say, what does it look like? What does it mean to do the works of the Father? Well, my understanding of the scripture means that it looks something like this. Father, what would you like me to do today? Whose life are you working in today? What are you up to today, Father? Would you help me to be tuned in to what you are doing so that I can be ready to work your works? Now, here's what I've found, that when I live that way, it's amazing what God is doing. I can't believe it. I talk to these people, and I think, God is at work in their life. It's unbelievable. How did this take place? What is going on? Oh, it's just God doing what he's always done. And I was actually paying attention. And I saw it. And it was God's invitation for me to be a part of what he's up to. 
brothers, sisters, do you believe that God has died? Do you think that he stopped working? You know something that I, it's a personal opinion, but personally, I think it could be true that God is working more now than he has in a long time in our country. There's reasons I believe that. I, I don't know that it's going to be a season that will continue a long time. I think it's God's opportunity. And we have a special opportunity. Not that God will stop working, but we know that God works more and less. And, and there are times when God is troubling in a nation. I think we're in a time like that. Jesus said this. He told his disciples, I'm the light of the world. The reason that the light comes is because there's darkness. Now, we can curse the darkness, and we're pretty good at doing that as God's people, or we can shine the light. Listen, yelling at people who are in darkness, telling them they're in darkness and they need to get in the light, doesn't help them. They don't have light. We have to take the light. By the way, Jesus said he's the light of the world, but he also told his disciples, ye are the light of the world. And he told them, don't, make sure not to hide your light. Make sure not to hide that candle under a bushel because you have a job to do. All right, now think with me about this. I'm almost done. There's a, there's a priority and an urgency to the Father's works. But for us to be involved in the Father's works, there's an activity that is required. We're going to have to walk in step with the Father, being filled with the Spirit of God, being sensitive to what God is doing, and I guarantee, I guarantee you will see God working. It, it has to happen that way. Because we know that God works through His children. He didn't leave us here to waste time. He, he didn't leave us here just to pass by and, and uh, get, you know, get by with some stuff. He left us here because there's work to do. And so if we're paying attention, we're going to see his work, and we're going to get plugged into that, and all of a sudden we're going to start to realize, as, we, as I have over the last year, man, God is doing some incredible things. It's been said, and it's true, we live in a post-Christian nation. It's true, our culture is changing. It's true that now, uh, I think a recent poll by Barna or Gallup shows that now the majority of Christians would no longer identify with a Christian church. So the game is changing, and I would expect, I think I said this to someone earlier, I would expect that the game is going to change dramatically within the next 10 years because we have a, we have a generation passing off the scene and a generations, the generations behind have all been indoctrinated in atheism, relativism, uh, secularism. So we know that the, we know it's happening. It's, it's, there's, and there's nothing that we can do to stop it. It's darkness. But there is something that is very effective against darkness. And that is light. And what we find is that in the midst of that darkness, there are people who are searching. There are people whose hearts are hungry for truth. Sometimes we pray, God, you've got to lead us to the people who are looking. 
Lead us to the people who are searching, who are asking questions. Help us to find them. Not everybody's asking questions. Not everybody's searching. And we do some uh, sowing. We do some watering. We do some breaking up of the ground. We do all of that. But I'll tell you what we want to know is, God, where are you working? And what we've seen over the last year is God's working. He is. It's unbelievable. I'll give you one example, and then I'm done. We had a young man. I baptized him uh, two Sunday nights ago. He grew up in our church. Heard the gospel, made multiple professions of faith, but never got converted. When he got old enough, he left. He walked away from the Lord and went into a life of sin. And this is all by his testimony that he shared Sunday night. In the last year, uh, his parents managed to keep a, a relationship with him, which was wonderful. Despite the fact that he fell into sin and went away from the Lord, they managed to keep close to him. And this young man became troubled because he knew enough of the word of God to know that what's happening is not good. This sounds an awful lot like things that I've read in Revelation. And he started talking to his mom, and then he started coming to church, and then he and his wife did a Bible study, and then he repented and believed on Christ, and his life was dramatically changed. And he followed in baptism. And, you know, this is a young man that has been prayed for for years. And God stirred in his heart. Now, this is, this is one example. We could, we could talk about multiple examples of how God is working in our area. But what I want you to come away with tonight and what I want to leave you with as we go from this conference is this. Brethren, the night is coming. It's coming. The time is coming when there's no more work. The time is coming when we will rest at Jesus' feet. The time is coming when we will be in his presence. And that will be a wonderful time. But right now, it's day. Right now, there is work to do. Right now, the Father is working. And he is inviting us to be a part. And this is an honor. This is a privilege. This is the greatest adventure of any believer's life. Working the works of the Father. It's day, but night is coming. Let's get to work.